Welcome to the Green Circles podcast. In this episode, we discuss sustainability in the modern world. What's going on, Alstead? Hey, Chief. Hey, just uh, spending a beautiful Saturday afternoon in October. It should be fucking almost freezing if I was in Michigan right now. Yeah. But I'm glad, damn glad, that I'm in Colorado, Golden, Colorado, to be specific. Are you also glad that you're south-facing? <laughs> it's pretty damn hot in your balcony, I must say. Oh, it's so hot. And I expect it to be that hot in the middle of winter out there. Yeah. Um, the sun is brutal. The air is thin. It's perfect for some solar energy, though. True. And I'm doing nothing for yeah. solar energy. Yeah. Except trying to sustain two silly little plants out there and I do a piss poor job. <laughs> yeah, you do. <laughs> I think it's gotten better this week though, compared to last week when I was over earlier. It looked right. like it wasn't maintained for like a year. <laughs> These poor plants are facing the southern sun and not really getting any love from its owner. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, um, looks way better mm. right now that was sure. really harsh dude really harsh <laughs> well you got I mean, it got i'm it. i'm trying i was told you have to love the plants mm-hmm. you know, i just don't know how or i should say where to love them so to speak yeah yeah anyway so this is our second take um i think with much better um sound quality i would hope um, yeah, so just a beautiful Saturday afternoon, um, mix and match as we have decided to go with the podcast for now. Um, but yeah, Gerard, what do you want to talk about today? Let's hit the nail right on the head and talk about sustainability in the modern world. And a huge mouthful. We haven't looked it up, at least I haven't on Wikipedia or any other reference per se. We probably will. Yeah. But um, just an overview of opinion, uh, belief system as we know it today, and uh, a place to get started. And like I mentioned, I'm watching the David Attenborough uh, television show that just came out recently. Uh, concerning sustainability, we want to reference that a couple times. Okay. Um, do you know what I've been reading or listening to? Did I mention it? Yes, you have, and I think it's in the last podcast uh, about Stephen oh, Hawking. Oh, yeah. I actually stopped reading that. No. I did. I still have two more chapters left. Um, so that was Stephen Hawking, um, Brief Answers to the Big Questions. Okay, that's yeah. right. Sounds um, familiar. Yeah, so that, that, that's what I was reading on the iPad. But I'm actually um, reading Break On Through to the Other Side. <laughs> <laughs> it's a memoir of Jim Morrison, actually. Okay. Um, very cool. I yeah. think his initial few days before he, um, obviously before the Doors became famous and while he was in L.A., he used to sleep on a rooftop of an abandoned building. That's where he used to live after he graduated from UCLA. Interesting. Um, um, he was in, doing film in UCLA and he was living out 
on the rooftop. But what was really interesting about him was that um, he understands a lot of um, spirituality and spiritual energy from a very young age, actually. Well, you know, they've always called him a poet. Mm -hmm. So that implies artistic and that can imply spiritual or with spiritual undertones mm -hmm. or belief systems. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, pretty incredible, actually. Um, I, I think, I do think finally that alcohol kind of suppressed his potential as much as he could have achieved um, in a short period of time, but he was quite the rock star, dude. <laughs> so alcohol turns out with a new understanding that I had this week is the devil. <laughs> <laughs> you know what's not the devil though? <laughs> no. What's not the devil? Um, um, green that grows naturally. Stuff oh. that, the stuff that we eat for like cabbage and no. and broccoli. That's the angel. Yeah. And um, very apropos to <laughs> sustainability and what we want to talk about. And I guess if I had to give an elevator pitch for it, I would say it is the use, not the misuse, or not the abuse. It's the use, rekindling, rejuvenation, recycling of all mm -hmm. of the planet's resources. And when you say all of the planet's resources, we got to be talking about a lot. Right. Yeah. I do think, though, that one of the best places we could start for today um, would be to talk about um, America. Um, sure. Modern sustainability. Um, when the first um, settlers came into the country, um, and obviously I'm saying settlers with my hands held high and <laughs> with uh, hyphen marks, but oh, not really hyphens, right? They're called Quotation. quotations, right? I knew <laughs> what you meant. Yeah, I'm have to cut that out. <laughs> but yeah, I think a good place to start would be um, the first settlers of America, um, and I mean the European settlers more than the Native Americans who obviously lived on the land for a very long time, um, and just, you know, lessons that were lost in the process lessons that are beginning to be resurfaced right now in the modern world and um, lessons for, you know, our future generations, your daughter, my future kids, <laughs> and, you know, where we're going to be leaving them. I guess, I, I, what do you think of that kind of a structure? And those future kids, I think, uh, are in and of themselves resources. Exactly. Um, mm -hmm. To a degree. Uh, when you come... Uh, into discussion about natives and the difference between natives and say European settlers. Were there specific examples of what you wanted to follow? For example, we've all heard stories about buffalo roaming the plains of the United States. Yep. And to what degree Native Americans reduced population and didn't pay attention to sustainability and to what degree the European immigrants uh, did the same. Mm -hmm. That one might be one example. Yep. That, that's a good, pretty good example, for sure. Um, we can, and then obviously we can go into modern day America where industrialization happened, I guess, post, I guess not pre-modern 
America that everything was industrialized and then post-industrialization and the, the future with AI. If, if we establish 1850 as being kind of the start or late start of industrial revolution in the United States, then we can start to measure things that were or weren't before that period right. or date and after that period and look at progressions and people have done this quite a bit. Um, I, I just liken the lack of sustainability and the depletion of earth required resources to be on a logarithmic scale. Right. Okay. Yeah. Let's, let's do it, dude. I think that's a pretty good structure. And there has been a lack of emphasis towards the long, long, long-term future of the planet uh, as much as, of course, uh, profits and power stoking as a result of harnessing those resources and not letting them in the hands of the entire planet. And I respect property rights. I know where that has an influence over those decisions. But I can't help but just see a huge bifurcation between uh, the, the reason we have uh, taken the plant where it is and where it could possibly have been sustainable or possibly can turn sustainable. I agree. Yeah. Overall, I think we have done a very poor job at keeping our planet sustainable. Um, for the future of our our population and as a species, you know, like uh, there's this very intricate belief among human beings where we think that because we have a high level of consciousness and intelligence as opposed to other species that also have intelligence but is are um, not as consciously driven in their decisions and life as we know it. Um, and I think that because of that capability, human capability, we have achieved a lot of great things in space, in, you know, technology, industrialization, the whole reason we can even think of and create technologies like solar, wind, geothermal, biogas, biofuel, natural gas, oil, petroleum, everything that powers our earth. I also think at the same time, um, with that consciousness, we have not truly um, understood that this earth is not just for highly intelligent beings. There are a lot of animals out there um, that they are conscious as well. Um, they have every right to um, being and living in a, a sustainable world as well. It's not about just us. Um, you know, we, we rely on them, they rely on us, and we have a duty as intelligent species to um, keep it going, you know? Okay, you really think animals have a conscience? I do, yeah. Very mm -hmm. limited, though. Limited yeah. as opposed to our conscience. I, I heard once, one time, and it was in school, I forget what level, the distinction between Homo sapien and all other... <laughs> animals on the earth was uh, man's ability to reason. Mm -hmm. So that might be just an argument as the way that uh, the delineation works between people and animals. I think I agree with that. 
I think that's a, a huge difference between human beings and um, other animals, our, right. our ability to reason. Um, I do think, though, that they are still conscious and they have, or they live in a world of their own where they are consciously doing stuff, mm-hmm. um, but not capable of reasoning. Right. Yeah. So, that being said, uh, how do you think that that might apply uh, to uh, man's ability to use consciousness uh, and ability to reason? To and when I say man, of course, I'm speaking about our entire species mm-hmm. and population, which read today at 7.8 billion. Um, ability to uh, do proper change and in a timely fashion. I'm just not sure how we can utilize consciousness and ability to reason. Yeah, I think that can be a very small section of the conversation. I mm-hmm. think there's a lot more to talk about. All right. uh, the spiritual aspect of how that plays into renewable energy can be brought up in many different episodes. Sure. Different things. So. Right. Yeah. I can't think of a billion things to talk about related to it, but it, it can just be a very small section. Yeah, no worries. Mm-hmm. All right, well, we've got great progress on a belief system change, I believe, very recently, that favors sustainability and everything related to it, conservation, recycling, et al., mm-hmm. uh, which is really a good thing. I And I feel there's momentum there that uh, with just a little bit of fertilizer, uh, can just run on to the degree that it really will affect positive change to sustainability and the environment. Right. Yeah, I think we are on the right track for sure. I think we are making up uh, for lost time. Sure, a lot of people out there believe that we need to be moving faster, which obviously science says we have to be moving faster. Um, we're still doing something, though. Yeah, um, we're doing something, yeah. and we'll get into this in a lot more detail about the factions that exist, uh, especially uh, political factions that directly affect this issue uh, and other factions as well mm-hmm. that probably will never go away. Uh, but, man, it sure seems that the faction concerned about life's Longevity is really taking hold and growing roots. Yep, it is. Um, uh, unfortunately, it's become a political um, statement where you're on one side of the aisle if you believe in sustainability and climate change, and you're on another side of the aisle when you don't do not um, to a large extent. Um, and I, I believe though that we are bridging the gap. Um, And that bridge and gap will come through technology, come through access of electric vehicles to even conservatives who do not completely support climate change. I think they will see the benefits of it and they do know the benefits of it and they're starting to realize it. Um, And I think think we're in a good spot. I think as long as benefits include some kind of financial gain or reward, (laughs) even if it's a tax exemption or (laughs) energy carbon credit or whatever, you're going to get the appetite of the traditional conservative people. 
Yep. Dude, I'll, I'll tell you something. I'll take it. I don't, I don't really, sure. I right. don't care if they understand it's, the science of it or not. No, as long as they're doing something and even if they unconsciously yeah. contribute to it, I'll take it. The, the money side is just the language. Exactly. As it applies to short-term or long-term decision-making on sustainability. Just like it's a language with all other financial transactions, at least that's my opinion. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Awesome. On the political side, one thing that I've kind of thought about for years uh, is one of the inherent problems of the political system, and again, bringing this back to the United States at least, is the fact that with term regulation, it just seems to me politicians don't have incentive to make a real long-term commitment because a lot of what they're banking on is re-election, possibly... Uh, paying off favors, um, and maybe various other things that just don't lead to long-term bite-the-bullet solutions that might be costly or uh, disruptive otherwise. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, I, uh, like, if you look back history before um, the democratic um, experiment has taken place, We've had people living on various lands all over the world for a very, very long time. Uh, Sustainable practices don't come in a day. Mm -hmm. It takes time. It takes experience. It takes understanding of nature, um, how to exploit it for your benefit uh, while not doing it harm. It's an art. I don't think it's something we can solve in four years where politicians can make it seem that this is an avenue for a lot of money, a lot of jobs. Sure, that's going to happen, but I don't think everyone can buy into it too quickly. Okay, so maybe I shouldn't count on it as being a political solution or at least entirely a political solution. And maybe another approach would be uh, to take it on or, or to consider the movement to be a little bit more uh, spiritual or habitual or uh, socially popular, mm-hmm. you know, like say yoga has become. Exactly, which takes a lot of time too. It took a lot of time to develop it, to understand it, to understand the benefits of it, to uh, for people to understand and trust the benefits of it. Right. Um, same with sustainability, I think um, takes time. Um, uh, sure, obviously politicians can speed up the process, mm-hmm. you know, by swinging policies in the way of sustainability so we can move faster right. uh, but i think understanding of sustainability as with everything takes time sure right so there's a rumor out there that the baby boomers are the root of all the problems with this now i just can't believe that and i gotta believe that you'll come to your senses and, and agree with me on that matter well, I mean, you don't believe that because you are a baby. Yes. <laughs> You're part of the problem. <laughs> In our eyes. Wait a minute. That's what I'm talking about here. I want to know, you know, because if you didn't have the shit that we built, you know, you'd probably be living in huts or something. Right. Yeah. I... <laughs> yeah, you can't have it both ways. <laughs> You can't reap the benefits of it and then also criticize the generation that created those kind of benefits for us. Well, the funny thing is that the boomers criticized the generation before them. 
Right. And probably on and on and on. Mm -hmm. And you're probably going to criticize uh, your predecessor generation. Which is yours. I'm a millennial, remember? So I didn't know if you were a X, Y, <laughs> Z, double A, millennial, <laughs> I don't know what the fuck you no, are. No, I'm, I'm right after you guys. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Okay, that works. Yeah. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, uh, it just... Well, every... I mean, so every product of every generation is to technology. Technologically advance as well as economically... Become more prosperous economically. That's just the trajectory of the human race, right? So you increase, technology will always increase. Um, certain generations, it will increase slower. Certain generations will increase faster. I do believe technology is increasing at a very rapid pace um, yeah. in the generation we live in. Um, but the thing is that baby boomers, in my opinion, had to go through the industrialization phase for us to generate technology like this, which led to repercussions in term in environment, unfortunately, um, but had to be done the same way that India and China um, and the developing countries. I truly believe China is a developed country. I don't think it's a developing country yeah, anymore. Right. Um, but the developing countries, um, they're going through industrialization as well. They're polluting a lot. India has approximately, I might be, um, might be slightly off here, but I think about 60% of their energy comes from coal, right? Wow. They're investing a lot in, in renewable technology. They are one of the fastest growing renewable markets in the world. Interesting. But they are also telling the rest of the world that, you know, we have a right to burn this coal uh, and not shut down our power plants too soon because a coal power plant has a pretty long lifetime. You know, if you're investing that much money, capital expenses and operating it for like 12 years and, you know, and there's this worldwide pressure of like, oh, you know, we need to switch to more different technologies. We need you guys to pay a lot more money into these new technologies to help the rest of us and the rest of the world. Um, and then these developing countries are like, OK, they're on board with that, but they have not completed industrialization yet. And we have a right to it. Um, and, you know, that's where the problem is, unfortunately. I can't disagree with that argument. Um, what's interesting is that there's been uh, known countries, known places that have been so uh, third world in terms of their technology mm -hmm. that there's actually opportunity to leapfrog several technologies and go uh, from, say, diesel-powered peaker cell electrical generation to uh, multi-milling uh, uh, renewable energy uh, production. Right. Instead of having to go to intermediate technologies such as large-scale uh, gas and oil uh, burning uh, energy plants. Right. I completely agree. You can 100% leapfrog that process of going through dirty industrialization as, as opposed to clean industrialization. That's why I truly believe that the United States as a country has to lead the movement because you need to show developing countries or developed countries, not just the United States, I think all developed countries need to show the developing countries that, hey, you know, 
we've learned from our mistakes. Sure, we've made money, a lot of money out of it. We've developed our countries out of it. Um, but, you know, we've found there is technology that exists now that is becoming very cheap. Battery costs have decreased by more than 100% in the past 10 years. Amazing. Um, so it's, it, you know, we, we just need to show them, we need to show developing countries that, hey, you know, we can leap for, you can, you guys can leapfrog this and still continue your development. Right. Um, without, mm-hmm. without, without slowing down. And I think the United States, in addition to having the capital resources and uh, an increase in interest in doing so, has somewhat of an obligation to do so because well, of um, the, uh, some irresponsibility that's happened over the decades. But when I think of progressive company, uh, countries, rather, um, I think of Scandinavia and mm-hmm. Norway and Denmark and Sweden mm-hmm. uh, and Australia to a degree as really being leaders when it comes to a commitment towards sustainability. For sure, yeah. Uh, yeah, a lot of a lot of those countries are far ahead in implementing on a national level renewable technology. Technically speaking, the demand that's served by renewable technologies in those countries is much lower than what would have to be fulfilled in the United States. Right? You've got a lower population, got a lower demand, not as high not as many industrial complexes, not as many manufacturing plants. Mm-hmm. Um, so the lower demand on the grid is much less and it's quite, it makes it much more achievable to generate and produce that much renewable power for everyone. United States, the demand is high. Um, policies get in the way, <laughs> obviously, as we've seen in the past um, four to eight to 12 to 16, 20 years. It's not just, I don't believe it's just one administration. I believe it's been a long time and we've seen policies being slowed down. Um, but, um, but yeah, I just, just want to give some technical viewpoint to that demand is much lesser over there. Sure. Excellent. As of the day, date we're recording this, it is November 1st. 2020 and what a Halloween that was, huh? (laughs) Certainly you've got more detail to say than just that. Just, hmm? Uh, Yeah, November 1st, 2020. Sustainability, what comes to mind with news reports that we heard this week is Exxon. Exxon down 30% in their stock value this year, as I recall. And for the first time in 30 years, freezing the dividend, the annual dividend amount given to shareholders. So, I mean, it's really the sign of the times. So definitely more on Exxon later. Also in the news for this week is both information about the hydrogen industry and what's going on with that, as well as uh, an issue that you came up with, an RFP being released, published in California for... Yeah, for long duration storage. Um, so California is the first state that's released a public RFP request for proposals from companies that can bid uh, for long duration storage. And obviously storage involves um, 
uh, can involve different technologies such as hydrogen, uh, pumped hydro, um, batteries, among others. Um, but those are probably the main technologies. But what's interesting about this RFP and what makes it special is that they are asking for bidders to develop a technology or dev uh, use technology that can generate 50 megawatts or greater um, which is possible and it's already been done for batteries li with lithium-ion technology so how many homes does 50 megawatts power uh it powers a small town of maybe um it depends on the energy actually so 50 megawatts is the power so 50 megawatts into four would be 200 megawatt hours which could power um, about 80 to 100 homes on average, yeah. Right. <clears throat> the, the interesting thing about this RFP is that California is specifically saying we need 50 megawatts or more for a duration of eight hours or more. Peak. Yeah, without mm -hmm. dropping the power rating. So what usually happens in the industry right now is that utility-scale storage, utility-scale ba lithium-ion batteries can have a certain amount of power, say 50 or 100, um, and dispatch that energy for four hours, four to maximum five hours. But if you want to get beyond that, the economics don't work anymore with lithium-ion beyond that duration. And second of all, they would have to decrease their power rating from, say, 50 or 100 megawatts to 40 megawatts, 30 megawatts to go longer than five hours. So it's what, so going back to the point that this is something special and why it's groundbreaking is because this is the first RFP that's asking storage companies to use technologies that can keep the same power for eight hours or more. Okay. Well, I guess one good thing that results from this is that with California moving more towards alternate uh, source storage solutions than all of the naysayers saying that that state doesn't have enough electricity for electric cars will start to win away a little bit. Right. With yeah. a recent mandate of all electric car sales by 2035. In California. In right? California, BEV. Okay, getting back to this RFP in California, could you talk a little bit more about the importance of where we're at now of four-hour storage, again, at the 50 megawatt total capacity per um, micro region, we'll call it. Uh, why is four hours with lithium-ion batteries so uh, important uh, in, at today's date? Yeah, sure. So. California is basically an experimental state. So we are getting to experience what the rest of the grid is going to look like 40 years from now. Um, and But we are lucky that there are states like California where they are experiencing that right now. So it's going to be a good lesson for all of us and how it takes off. So, so a model. Uh, it's a model, exactly. And we are going to learn from their mistakes as we recently did. So the, the whole concept of long duration storage has even come into place because 
as you increase the amount of renewables, renewable energy on your grid, um, there's only so much time those renewables can be helpful. So like you have solar power coming on at 6, 7 a.m., dropping off at 4 to 6 p.m. Um, but in most states, that's usually not when their peak demand exists. Most states have usually a peak demand. So for example, Alabama experiences uh, high peaks um, early morning in their winter months um, and their grid gets extremely strained because of it. Um, whereas in California, their peaks, their electric peaks usually go up between uh, 5, 4 to 5 through 8 p.m. So that density changes, of course, across geography. Exactly, yeah. So right. it, it differs from state to state. It differs from, you know, what kind of a state it is, what kind of industrial processes occur. Um, it, it depends on whether most of their load, most of the electrical load or demand that they have to meet comes from, does it come from residential or does it come from commercial or a mix of both? Um, if it's a highly residential load, you're going to see peaks early morning when people wake up, when they plug in their toast, uh, their uh, ovens, their microwaves and heat up their food or when their kids come back later and the parents come back from work later in the evening, that's when the peaks go up. But going back to the topic of um, energy storage and long duration storage, this conversation is becoming more and more important because the more we transition towards a highly renewable energy grid, the more need there exists for long duration storage because current storage technology, apart from um, pumped hydro, can only give you four to five hours. Sure. I think in part that is due to the fact that conventional generation of coal, oil, natural gas mm -hmm. at the big power plants offer a degree of throttling or regulation with respect to their power output to compensate for the density changes that are due to load changes that are due to a whole variety of factors both in residential commercial and industrial right exactly so uh, let's let's talk about a specific case so say and this is hypothetical, but it's also happening in a, a lot of a lot of states in the United States. Um, so let's talk about a state, a hypothetical state. Um, they have a lot of peak demand um, coming uh, in the evenings after people come back home, um, and they are a state that's progressive. They're bringing a lot of renewables into it into their grid, um, and they'll still have to meet that peak in the evening after solar dies down sure so there are two ways around it right so you can have a lot of like 40 percent renewable penetration and then 60 percent can be na say natural gas or coal the problem with that is that those natural gas power plants which has a lot of capex associated with it we've put in a lot of capital money there's a lot of operation operations and maintenance costs over its lifetime um they're just going to be sitting there right waiting to be dispatched during the evening peak. The problem with doing that is that you are going to be, you would have to be running those natural gas power plants um, so that they're warmed up 
Well, that's what we call it in the industry. You call it warmed up? Yeah. It's basically you're warming up your car, you're heating up your car. You have got oh, to like warm the up. The cost to just do that. Yeah. The cost to have an asset sitting there without <sighs> producing a dispatching energy right. is is irresponsible, number one. And number two, it's just ridiculous. Well, the first thing that comes to mind to me is a, a design improvement to make power generation along with all kinds of other stuff more modular, mm -hmm. more scalable, mm -hmm. more like a cell. And that's where the word cell phone comes from, is that the distribution antennas and network are based on cellular technology. I don't know if you knew that. I did not actually. What? <laughs> Seriously, that's why I call oh, my, uh, oh, yeah, I did not that's why that. I, That's why I call my phone a mobile phone. <laughs> Just for an example, and I'll explain why. And then we'll get back to power generation and everything else. I call it a mobile phone because I consider the term mobile, as in mobile phone, to be more generic. Right. Betting on, on, or hedging on the bet that cell technology will change into a myriad of other technologies to facilitate telecommunication mm -hmm. and phone calls. Right. Yep. Spot on. All right. Anyway. Um, the four hours and the lithium-ion battery, and to kind of roll this back into sustainability, my takeaway on what you're saying is current technology and probably the gist of the RFP in California, uh, technical specifications require four hours because that currently is the cap of a lithium-ion type of uh, <clears throat> grid storage accommodates. Right, exactly. And, you know, and there's another aspect to it, right? Like, the, the, the reason long duration is becoming more important and a lot of states are, um, are realizing it is because, you know, all, every state has these promises that they're going to completely decarbonize their grid by, say, 2035, sure. 2040, 2050. But how exactly are you going to do that? you'd have to have technologies in place that can basically deliver 24-7 um, renewable generation. Sure. Renewables, the biggest problem with renewables is that they're intermittent. Um, current uh, lithium-ion utility-scale storage is only uh, can only be good for dispatching at a certain power for four to five hours. So how are you going to get 24-7? How are you going to get 24 hours in a day of just renewable generation? So that gap right there is going to be filled by long duration storage. Gotcha. And so, look how far we've come. Mm -hmm. You're asking the question, but I would only go back in time to see where we were 5, 10, 30 years ago with the capacity for battery storage or any kind of storage uh, as it supplements energy storage for the grid. Right, and then extrapolate that, and then where we are now, see four hours lithium, 50 megawatt microgrid, micro storage. Mm -hmm. Where are we gonna be in five to 10 years? Well, I think it's gonna be exponential, and I think there is such a wave of enthusiasm, uh, socially, a wave of CapEx mm -hmm. uh, from legacy to renewable. There's such a wave of even political um, acceptances and promises mm -hmm. towards the same goal 
of sustainable power generation. And, you know, power generation is really only a third of all energy, a huge impact, obviously, but I'm geeked about it. Yeah, likewise. Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, and just, just kind of staying in the storage topic a little, um, apart from, you know, politics and policies that can make it happen, um, it's, it's also worth noting that, you know, pumped, pumped storage is, accounts for 97% of energy storage in the United States currently. And energy storage meaning um, grid energy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so I had no idea. 97%. So, there's a, so while we have this whole hype around batteries and long duration storage, it's also something to consider that pumped hydro is, is, has been and will continue to be a major asset. But um, it's not easy to build those, uh, those, pl those storage plants, those pumped hydro storage plants anywhere. The geography has to allow it to happen. Wait a minute. Are you telling me that currently 97% of all electrical storage is done through pumped hydro storage? Exactly. Yep. 97%. And I, I don't think that the number will decrease over time. Um, but it, it's what it is. Yeah. 97%. So I just only heard about pumped hydro storage recently and I'm saying two or three months ago. Yeah. And my understanding, even though I've never seen one of these facilities, is that the way it works is basically the way domestic water towers work uh, in towns that you see water towers in, where for domestic water head pressure to be possible, water is pumped to the top of the tower where it is sitting <clears throat> on a head of pressure or static energy. Then it's released or throttled down to feed households with enough pressure that they need, 30 PSI, etc., etc. So this operates the same way, the way I understand it, where you pump water vertically to a reservoir and then it's used later by throttling down spinning turbines through generators generating power. Exactly. And pushing that power up the reservoir to a reservoir um, through the pens via the penstock, um, that, that can be done through renewable power. So you can have solar power or wind that can basically send electricity and move these turbines in a particular way um, and uh, the, 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 basis, the base generation would be renewables. Interesting. Yeah. And approximately how efficient are these? I know how the pumps work, but how efficient overall gross efficiency or net? Yeah, I think the round trip efficiency is somewhere between 70 to 80%. And that's with um, moving the turbines one way to move right. the power up and moving, uh, moving the water up and moving the water down. Uh, the whole round trip efficiency is somewhere between 70 to 80%. Right. Um, and there are companies out there and there are projects out there that, um, that say that their storage is about uh, 80, 85%. Interesting. Um, uh, efficient. Yeah. So if this is going to take a lot of flow, a lot of GPM, then I would think, and also if the CapEx 
for pumped hydro storage technology is increasing, that there would be engineers and designers interested in, of course, increasing that 70 to 80% efficiency. And the first things that come to mind for me is the efficiency of the motors that drive the pumps, efficiency of the generators, mm -hmm. uh, the efficiency of the pipe in terms of friction, friction loss. Losses, right? Yeah, or lower friction losses. Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, I would think would be a great interest to the designer. Yeah, definitely. Um, and the second half of that story uh, for efficiencies is also how far is, how far are you dispatching that energy? Sure, you know, you can store the energy and it counts with 97% of energy storage right now in this country, but how far is your load from? the reservoir because sure. it has to have electrical losses to go to the point where you want to send the electricity to so right. and that's where long that's where batteries have a much superior um um and that's where batteries are more advantageous because you can place them very close to where you want to meet your load pumped hydro is great it has a huge storage capacity. It has high capex cost, uh, costs. It probably has not too high operations and maintenance costs, but I might be wrong there. But just generally, I don't think that the operations and maintenance costs are spoken about as much uh, as a disadvantage. Um, but but that's the advantage with batteries, right? So you can keep these batteries um, at specific locations, very strategically, um, close to close to the load that you want to meet and they dispatch right away very quickly. So energy production and storage obviously a huge part of sustainability going forward in the years. But let's talk about overall load. Um, just a quick look online reveals transportation. This has got to be for the United States. It looks like 2019 represented 37 percent of all energy consumption, industrial, of course, manufacturing, mm -hmm. water treatment, everything falls under industrial that isn't one of the others, has 36% energy consumption, and then residential commercial combined to make up 28%. So I'm a building engineer, and I'd like to talk about great concepts, uh, ideas, yearnings uh, for improving buildings. And I study this religiously every day, always looking for nuances. But 28% of overall consumption for buildings, residential, commercial, uh, still represents a big part of the pie. We've been trying to improve efficiency over the years. There's been various association and government influences uh, Energy Star being one for appliances that comes to mind. But there's still a long, long way to go. And I am really excited about how that industry can change. Right. Uh, do you see, uh, I guess, I guess it goes without saying that residential and commercial um, electricity consumption will go up overall, right, as time goes by. Has and will, that's right. But also efficiencies will improve as they have. Mm -hmm. They'll continue to improve. 
So you really have those two factions working for or against each other, consumption and efficiency, or, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then into the mixes also, artificial intelligence that controls devices within the house. Well, you, it's interesting <laughs> you mentioned control because when it comes to commercial uh, buildings, hospitals, airports, uh, even going into factories to a degree, uh, it's the control side of the building automation system, BAS, or BMS, building management system, that is the single entity that has gotten much more advanced over the years, the controls. Interesting. BMS also stands for battery management system. Ah. <laughs> As you might know in your test. Now, wait a minute. <laughs> All right. Forget about the Tesla for a second. I get to use BMS first because I started using it way before you did. I'll give you that. All right. Yeah. All right. I think you can take ownership of that title. All right. But you can borrow it if you want. I have. We've borrowed it for the yeah, Tesla. Yeah, but you haven't gotten... That's true. We have borrowed it for the Tesla, but you haven't gotten my short-term loan program in the mail yet. <laughs> but don't worry. The interest rates will be very mm, competitive. You think so? Yeah. Yes. And what makes you so confident? Well, of course, it's open to opinion and interpretation, but I've never been known to really jip a person knowingly. <laughs> Okay, I'll take your word at it. All right. Anyway, on buildings and efficiency, let's continue on with the same beautiful example of modularity, scalability, and, and, and cellular um, architecture, as it were. Buildings need to go from large-scale mechanical and electrical equipment like is found in conventional power generation plants Mm -hmm. to a design that is a more modular design, more cellular. Is it maybe a little heater or a little AC box in each room? Yeah, maybe they're already starting to do that to hedge the COVID virus spreads with a similar kind of small modular design. This is the kind of uh, effort and thinking that excites me the most and I tell you, uh, in my studies and research, not a lot of people are paying attention to this yet. What's that modular design? Exactly. Buildings? Right. Make things scalable, modular. I think eventually space stations and outer planetary colonizations will follow the same principles. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Very yeah. interesting. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm totally with you on that. I I'm not an MEP engineer. Um, I do see a lot of potential with um, um, improving control of devices that uh, in increase consumption. So your thermostat, making smarter thermostats that learns from user behavior over time. And you basically do not have to go up to your thermostat, turn it up to 71, turn it down to 65, and then waste so much electricity in the process. Because yeah. you're going to feel hot. Okay, you turn it up to like 70, 78, you feel hot. Then you turn it back down to like 64, <laughs> you feel cold <laughs> two hours later. You go back, you wake up in the middle of the diet and like, oh, it's cold. <laughs> you go back and turn it up again. Um, it's interesting because I think, like you said, 
energy consumption in like buildings are so crucial because as technology is improving obviously there's energy efficiency like you described that's as as time goes by appliances are becoming more and more efficient codes and standards are improving um like many standards such as ashray things exactly. that you've worked with obviously standard not code yeah just to make a distinction, code is of course important as well. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, also control. I think control will be uh, a very important issue that uh, new that sustainable lead buildings have to take into account. Uh, and if they don't jump on that train, the artificial intelligence train, of course, right. early on, they're going to be losing <clears throat> out. Right. No, it's going to be interesting, maybe a little scary to see how AI advancements in uh, HVAC control systems will continue to evolve. Um, very interesting to the degree we're talking about thermostats. You know, can you imagine an AI controlled HVAC system automatically turning down the heat when they think you're <laughs> finished having sex in the bedroom? <laughs> yeah. No. Oh, wait a minute. Oh, it could be possible. Could be. Oh, I don't know. Uh, but seriously, we used to call them thermostat wars. And in commercial buildings, say an office building, let's say it's 10,000 square foot uh, floor print and <clears throat> it is open space with cubicles and there's three thermostats on the wall mm -hmm. and people complain because it's too <laughs> hot, because it's too cold. Right. To the degree that industry has decided to install what is known as placebo thermostats mm. so they look like a, a t-stat but they don't act like a t-stat really and all it does is modify the psychological condition of the occupants of which not just temperature but humidity plays a critical <laughs> critical role ask anybody that goes from say living in michigan to living in colorado mm -hmm. the difference is not in just elevation but also the differences in humidity and how that affects comfort. A lot of people don't understand that, or the ones that even do, a lot of times don't even account for it. It's a little bit more expensive to be able to control humidity mm -hmm. as well, but man, it makes a difference. Right, yeah. Um, going back to last night, I think our host for the Halloween party had her humidifier on. Yes, she did. Yes, Interesting. that's it. Yep. Exactly. She keeps that on. Yep. Yeah, there were mm -hmm. about 15 people in there, right. in that house. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, you would not see that in Boston. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I ever have seen it in Boston, except maybe for a data center. Right. Yes. <laughs> this concludes our episode on sustainability. Welcome to the Green Circles podcast. In this episode, we discuss sustainability in the modern world. What's going on, Austin? Hey, G. Hey, just uh, spending a beautiful Saturday afternoon in October. It should be fucking almost freezing if I was in Michigan right now. Yeah. But I'm glad, damn glad, that I'm in Colorado, Golden, Colorado, to be specific. Are you also glad that you're south-facing? <laughs> it's pretty damn hot in your balcony, I must say. Oh, it's so hot. And I expect it to be that hot in the middle of winter out there. Yeah. 
Um, the sun is brutal, the air is thin. It's perfect for some solar energy though. True, and I'm doing nothing for yeah. solar energy. Yeah. Except trying to sustain two silly little plants out there and I do a piss poor job. <laughs> yeah, you do. <laughs> I think it's gotten better this week though, compared to last week when I was over earlier. It looked right. like it wasn't maintained for like a year. <laughs> These poor plants are facing the southern sun and not really getting any love from its owner. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, yeah. Um, looks way mm. better right now. That was sure. really harsh, dude. Really harsh. <laughs> well, you got I mean, to... I'm, I'm trying. I was told you have to love the plants. Mm -hmm. I just don't know how or I should say where to love them, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so this is our second take. Um, I think with much better um, sound quality, I would hope. Um, yeah, so just a beautiful Saturday afternoon. Um, mix and match as we have decided to go with the podcast for now. Um, but yeah, Gerard, what do you want to talk about today? Let's hit the nail right on the head and talk about sustainability in the modern world and a huge mouthful we haven't looked it up at least i haven't on wikipedia or any other reference per se we probably will yeah but um just that overview of opinion uh, belief system as we know it today and uh, a place to get started and like i mentioned i'm watching the david attenborough uh, television show that just came out recently uh, concerning sustainability. We want to reference that a couple times. Okay. Um, do you know what I've been reading or listening to? Did I mention it? Yes, you have, and I think it's in the last podcast uh, about Stephen oh, Hawking. Oh, yeah. I actually stopped reading that. No. I did. I still have two more chapters left. Um, so that was Stephen Hawking... Um, brief answers to the big questions. Okay, yeah. that's right. Sounds um, familiar. Yeah, so that, that, that's what I was reading on my iPad. But I'm actually um, reading Break On Through to the Other Side. <laughs> <laughs> it's a memoir of Jim Morrison, actually. Okay. Um, very cool. I yeah. think his initial few days before he... Um, Obviously, before the Doors became famous and while he was in L.A., he used to sleep on a rooftop of an abandoned building. That's where he used to live after he graduated from UCLA. Interesting. Um, um, he was in, doing film in UCLA and he was living out on the rooftop. But what was really interesting about him was that um, he understands a lot of um, spirituality and spiritual energy from a very young age actually well you know they've always called him a poet mm -hmm. so that implies artistic and that can imply spiritual or with spiritual undertones mm -hmm. or belief systems yep mm -hmm. yeah um pretty incredible actually um i, I think i do think finally that alcohol kind of suppressed his potential as much as he could have achieved um, in a short period of time, but he was quite the rock star, dude. <laughs> so alcohol 
turns out with a new understanding that I had this week mm-hmm. is the devil. <laughs> <laughs> you know what's not the devil though? No. What's not the devil? Um, um, green that grows naturally. Stuff uh, that, the stuff that we eat for like cabbage and no and broccoli. That's the angel. Yeah. And um, very apropos to <laughs> sustainability and what we want to talk about. And I guess if I had to give an elevator pitch for it, I would say it is the use, not the misuse, or not the abuse. It's the use, rekindling, rejuvenation, recycling of all mm-hmm. of the planet's resources. And when you say all of the planet's resources, we got to be talking about a lot. Right. Yeah. I do think, though, that one of the best places we could start for today um, would be to talk about um, America. Um, sure. Modern sustainability. Um, when the first um, settlers came into the country, um, and obviously I'm saying settlers with my hands held high and <laughs> with the uh, hyphen marks, but oh, not really hyphens, right? They're called Quotation. quotations, right? I knew <laughs> what you meant. Yeah, I'm gonna have to cut that out. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think a good place to start would be um, the first settlers of America, um, and I mean the European settlers more than the Native Americans who obviously lived on the land for a very long time. Um, And just, you know, lessons that were lost in the process, lessons that are beginning to be resurfaced right now in the modern world, and um, lessons for, you know, our future generations, your daughter, my future kids, (laughs) and, you know, where we're going to be leaving them. I guess, I, I, what do you think of that kind of a structure? And those future kids, I think, uh, are in and of themselves resources. Exactly. Um, mm-hmm. To a degree. Uh, when you come uh, into discussion about natives and the difference between natives and, say, European settlers, were there specific examples of what you wanted to follow? For example, we've all heard stories about buffalo roaming the plains of the United States. Yep. And to what degree... Native Americans reduced population and didn't pay attention to sustainability and to what degree the European immigrants uh, did the same. Mm-hmm. That might be one example. Yeah, that, that's a good, pretty good example for sure. Um, we can, and then obviously we can go into modern day America where industrialization happened. I guess, post, I guess not pre-modern America where everything was industrialized and then post-industrialization and the, the future with AI. If, if we establish 1850 as being kind of the start or late start of industrial revolution in the United States, then we can start to measure things that were or weren't before that period right. or date and after that period and look at progressions and people have done this quite a bit. Um, I, I just liken the lack of sustainability and the depletion of earth required resources to be on a logarithmic scale. Right. Okay. Yeah. Let's let's do it, dude. I think that's a pretty good structure.
And there has been a lack of emphasis towards the long, long, long-term future of the planet, uh, as much as, of course, uh, profits and power stoking as a result of harnessing those resources and not letting them in the hands of the entire planet. And I respect property rights. I know where that has an influence over those decisions, but I can't help but just see a huge bifurcation between uh, the, the reason we have uh, taken the plant where it is and where it could possibly have been sustainable or possibly can turn sustainable. I agree. Yeah. Overall, I think we have done a very poor job at keeping our planet sustainable um, for the future of our our population and as a species you know like there's this very intricate belief among human beings where we think that because we have a high level of consciousness and intelligence as opposed to other species that also have intelligence but is are um, not as consciously driven in their decisions and life as we know it um, and I think that because of that capability, human capability, we have achieved a lot of great things in space, in, you know, technology, industrialization, the whole reason we can even think of and create technologies like solar, wind, geothermal, biogas, biofuel, natural gas, oil, petroleum, everything that powers our earth. I also think at the same time, um, with that consciousness, we have not truly um, understood that this earth is not just for highly intelligent beings. There are a lot of animals out there um, that they are conscious as well. Um, they have every right to um, being and living in a, a sustainable world as well. It's not about just us. Um, you know, we, we rely on them, they rely on us, and we have a duty as intelligent species to um, keep it going, you know? Okay, you really think animals have a conscience? I do, yeah. Very mm -hmm. limited, though. Limited yeah. as opposed to our conscious. Um, I, I heard conscience. one one time, and it was in school, I forget what level, the distinction between Homo sapien and all other animals on the earth was uh, man's ability to reason. Mm -hmm. So that might be just an argument as the way that uh, the delineation works between people and animals. I think I agree with that. I think that's a, a huge difference between human beings and um, other animals, our, mm -hmm. our ability to reason. Um, I do think though that they are still conscious and they have but they live in a world of their own where they are consciously doing stuff, mm -hmm. um, but not capable of reasoning. Right. Yeah. So that being said, uh, how do you think that that might apply uh, to uh, man's ability to use consciousness uh, and ability to reason? To and when I say man, of course, I'm speaking about our entire species. Mm -hmm. and population which read today at 7.8 billion wow. um, ability to uh, 
do proper change and in a timely fashion. I'm just not sure how we can utilize consciousness and the ability to reason. Yeah, I think that can be a very small section of the conversation. I mm -hmm. think there's a lot more to talk about. All right. uh, the spiritual aspect of how that plays into renewable energy can be brought up in many different episodes. Sure. And different things. So. Right. Yeah. I can't think of a billion things to talk about related to it, but it, it can just be a very small section. Yeah, no worries. Mm -hmm. All right, well, we've got great progress on a belief system change, I believe, very recently, that favors sustainability and everything related to it, conservation, recycling, et al., mm -hmm. uh, which is really a good thing. I And I feel there's momentum there that, uh, with just a little bit of fertilizer uh, can just run on to the degree that it really will affect positive change to sustainability and the environment. Right. Yep. I think we're on the right track for sure. I think we're making up uh, for lost time. Sure, a lot of people out there believe that we need to be moving faster, which obviously science says we have to be moving faster. Um, we're still doing something, though. Yeah, um, we're doing something, yeah. and we'll get into this in a lot more detail about the factions that exist, uh, especially uh, political factions that directly affect this issue uh, and other factions as well mm -hmm. that probably will never go away. Uh, but, man, it sure seems that the faction concerned about life's Longevity is really taking hold and growing roots. Yep, it is. Um, unfortunately, it's become a political um, statement where you're on one side of the aisle if you believe in sustainability and climate change, and you're on another side of the aisle when you don't do not um, to a large extent. Um, and I, I believe though that we are bridging the gap. Um, and that bridge and gap will come through technology, come through access of electric vehicles to even conservatives who do not completely support climate change. I think they will see the benefits of it and they do know the benefits of it and they're starting to realize it. Um, and I think, I think we're in a good spot. Yep. I think as long as benefits include some kind of financial gain or reward, <laughs> yeah. even if it's a tax exemption <laughs> or a energy carbon credit or right. whatever, you're going to get the appetite of the traditional conservative people. Yep. Dude, I'll, I'll tell you something. I'll take it. I don't, I don't really, sure. I don't care if they understand it's, the science of it or not. No, as long as they're doing something and even if they unconsciously mm -hmm. contribute to it, I'll take it. The, the money side is just the language. Exactly. As it applies to short-term or long-term decision-making on sustainability. Just like it's a language with all other financial transactions, at least that's my opinion. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Awesome. On the political side, one thing that I've kind of thought about for years uh, is one of the inherent problems of the political system, and again, bringing this back to the United States at least, is the fact that with term regulation, it just seems to me politicians don't have incentive to make a real long-term commitment because a lot of what 
they're banking on is re-election, um, possibly uh, paying off favors, um, and maybe various other things that just don't lead to long-term bite-the-bullet uh, solutions that might be costly or uh, disruptive otherwise. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, I uh, like if you look back history before um, the democratic um, experiment has taken place. We have had people living on various lands all over the world for a very, very long time. Uh, sustainable practices don't come in a day. Mm -hmm. It takes time. It takes experience. It takes understanding of nature, um, how to exploit it for your benefit. Uh, while not doing it harm. It, it's an art. I don't think it's something we can solve in four years where politicians can make it seem that this is an avenue for a lot of money, a lot of jobs. Sure, that's going to happen, but I don't think everyone can buy into it too quickly. Okay, so maybe I shouldn't count on it as being a political solution or at least entirely a political solution and maybe another approach would be uh, to take it on or, or to consider the movement to be a little bit more uh, spiritual or habitual or uh, socially popular, mm -hmm. you know, like say yoga has become. Exactly, which takes a lot of time too. It took a lot of time to develop it, to understand it, to understand the benefits of it, to, uh, for people to understand and trust the benefits of it. Right. Um, same with sustainability, I think, um, takes time. Um, uh, sure, obviously, politicians can speed up the process, mm -hmm. you know, by swinging policies in the way of sustainability so we can move faster. Right. Uh, but I think understanding of sustainability, as with everything, takes time. Sure, right. So there's a rumor out there that the baby boomers are the root of all the problems with this. Now, I just can't believe that. And I got to believe that you'll come to your senses and agree with me on that matter. Well, I mean, you don't believe that because you are a baby. Yes. <laughs> You're part of the problem. <laughs> In our eyes. Wait a minute. That's what I'm talking about here. I want to know, you know, because if you didn't have the shit that we built, you mm -hmm. know, you'd probably be living in huts or something. Right. Yeah, I... <laughs> 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 yeah, you can't have it both ways. <laughs> you can't reap the benefits of it and then also criticize the generation that created those kind of benefits for us. Well, the funny thing is that the boomers criticized the generation before them. Right. And probably on and on and on. Mm -hmm. And you're probably going to criticize uh, your predecessor generation. Which is yours. I'm a millennial, remember? So. I didn't know if you were a... X, Y, Z, double A, trilemial. I don't know what the fuck you nah, are. No, I'm, I'm right after you guys. Right. <laughs> okay, that works. Yeah. Um. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, it just... Well, every... I mean, so every product of every generation is to technology technologically advance as well as economically become more prosperous economically that's just the trajectory of the human race right so you increase technology will always increase 
um, certain generations it will increase slower, certain generations it will increase faster. I do believe technology is increasing at a very rapid pace um, yeah. in the generation we live in. Um, but the thing is that baby boomers, in my opinion, had to go through the industrialization phase for us to generate technology like this, which led to repercussions in term in environment, unfortunately, um, but had to be done the same way with India and China um, and the developing countries. I truly believe China is a developed country. I don't think it's a developing country yeah. anymore. Right. Um, but the developing countries, um, they're going through industrialization as well. They're polluting a lot. India has approximately, I might be, um, might be slightly off here, but I think about 60% of their energy comes from coal, right? Wow. They're investing a lot in, in renewable technology. They are one of the fastest growing renewable markets in the world. Interesting. But they are also telling the rest of the world that, you know, we have a right to burn this coal uh, and not shut down our power plants too soon because a coal power plant has a pretty long lifetime. You know, if you're investing that much money, capital expenses and operating it for like 12 years and, you know, and there's this worldwide pressure of like, oh, you know, we need to switch to more different technologies. We need you guys to pay a lot more money into these new technologies to help the rest of us and the rest of the world. Um, and then these developing countries are like, okay, we're on board with that, but they have not completed industrialization yet. And we have a right to it. Um, and, you know, that's where the problem is, unfortunately. I can't disagree with that argument. Um, what's interesting is that there's been uh, known countries, known places that have been so uh, third world in terms of their technology mm -hmm. that there's actually opportunity to leapfrog several technologies and go uh, from, say, diesel-powered peaker cell electrical generation to uh, multi-milling uh, uh, renewable energy uh, production. Right. Instead of having to go to intermediate technologies such as large-scale uh, gas and oil uh, burning uh, energy plants. Right. I completely agree. You can 100% leapfrog that process of going through dirty industrialization as, as opposed to clean industrialization. That's why I truly believe that the United States as a country has to lead the movement because you need to show developing countries or developed countries, not just the United States, I think all developed countries need to show the developing countries that, hey, you know, we've learned from our mistakes. Sure, we've made money, a lot of money out of it. We've developed our countries out of it. Um, but, you know, we've found there is technology that exists now that is becoming very cheap. Battery costs have decreased by more than 100% in the past 10 years. Amazing. Um, so it's, you know, we, we just need to show them, we need to show developing countries that, hey, you know, we can leapfrog, you, can, you guys can leapfrog this and still continue your development. Right. Um, without, <laughs> without, without slowing down. And I think the United States, in addition to having the capital resources and uh, an increase in interest in doing so, has somewhat of an obligation to do so because, well, of um, the, uh, some irresponsibility that's happened over the decades. But 
when I think of progressive company uh, countries, rather, um, I think of Scandinavia and mm -hmm. Norway and Denmark and Sweden mm -hmm. uh, and Australia to a degree as really being leaders when it comes to a commitment towards sustainability. For sure, yeah, uh, yeah. A lot of a lot of those countries are far ahead in implementing on a national level renewable technology. Technically speaking, the demand that's served by renewable technologies in those countries is much lower than what would have to be fulfilled in the United States, right? You've got a lower population, got a lower demand, not as high, not as many industrial complexes, not as many manufacturing plants. Mm -hmm. um, so the lower demand on the grid is much less and it's quite, it makes it much more achievable to generate and produce that much renewable power for everyone. United States, the demand is high. Um, policies get in the way, obviously, as we've seen in the past um, four to eight to 12 to 16, 20 years. It's not just, I don't believe it's just one administration. I believe it's been a long time. And we've seen policies being slowed down. Um, but um, but yeah, I just, just want to give some technical viewpoint to that demand is much lesser over there. Sure. Excellent. As of the day, date, we're recording this, it is November 1st, 2020. And what a Halloween that was, huh? Mm. <laughs> Certainly you've got more detail to say than just that. Just, hmm? Uh, yeah, November 1st, 2020. Sustainability, what comes to mind with news reports that we heard this week is Exxon. Exxon down 30% in their stock value this year, as I recall. And for the first time in 30 years, freezing the dividend, the annual dividend amount given to shareholders. So, I mean, it's really the sign of the times. So definitely more on Exxon later. Also in the news for this week is both information about the hydrogen industry and what's going on with that, as well as uh, an issue that you came up with, an RFP being released, published in California for? Yeah, for long duration storage. Um, so California is the first state that's released a public RFP request for proposals from companies that can bid uh, for long duration storage. And obviously storage involves, um, uh, can involve different technologies such as hydrogen, uh, pumped hydro, um, batteries, among others. Um, but those are probably the main technologies. But what's interesting about this RFP and what makes it special is that they are asking for bidders to develop a technology or dev uh, use technology that can generate 50 megawatts or greater um, which is possible and it's already been done for batteries li with lithium-ion technology. So how many homes does 50 megawatts power? Uh, it powers a small town of maybe um, it depends on the energy actually so 50 megawatts is the power. So 50 megawatts into four would be 200 megawatt hours, which could power 
um, about 80 to 100 homes on average, yeah. Right. <clears throat> the, the interesting thing about this RFP is that California is specifically saying we need 50 megawatts or more for a duration of eight hours or more. Peak. Yeah, without mm. dropping the power rating. So what usually happens in the industry right now is that utility-scale storage, utility-scale ba lithium-ion batteries can have a certain amount of power, say 50 or 100, um, and dispatch that energy for four hours, four to maximum five hours. But if you want to get beyond that, the economics don't work anymore with lithium-ion beyond that duration. And second of all, they would have to decrease their power rating from, say, 50 or 100 megawatts to 40 megawatts, 30 megawatts to go longer than five hours. So it's what, so going back to the point that this is something special and why it's groundbreaking is because this is the first RFP that's asking storage companies to use technologies that can keep the same power for eight hours or more. Okay. Well, I guess one good thing that results from this is that with California moving more towards alternate uh, source storage solutions than all of the naysayers saying that that state doesn't have enough electricity for electric cars will start to win away a little bit. Right. With yeah. a recent mandate of all electric car sales by 2035. In California, In right? California, BEV. Okay, getting back to this RFP in California, could you talk a little bit more about the importance of where we're at now of four-hour storage, again, at the 50 megawatt total capacity per uh, micro region, we'll call it. Uh, why is four hours with lithium-ion batteries so uh, important uh, in, at today's date? Yeah, sure. So, uh, California is basically an experimental state. So we are getting to experience what the rest of the grid is going to look like 40 years from now. Um, and But we're lucky that there are states like California where they're experiencing that right now. So it's going to be a good lesson for all of us and how it takes off. So, so a model. Uh, it's a model, exactly. And we're going to learn from their mistakes as we recently did. So the, the whole concept of long duration storage has even come into place because as you increase the amount of renewables, renewable energy on your grid, um, there's only so much time those renewables can be helpful. So like you have solar power coming on at 6, 7 a.m., dropping off at 4 to 6 p.m. Um, but in most states, that's usually not when their peak demand exists. Most states have usually a peak demand. So for example, Alabama experiences uh, high peaks um, early morning in their winter months um, and their grid gets extremely strained because of it. Um, whereas in California, their peaks, their electric peaks usually go up between uh, 5, 4 to 5 through 8 p.m. So that density changes, of course, across geography. Exactly, yeah. 
So right. it, it differs from state to state. It differs from, you know, what kind of a state it is, what kind of industrial processes occur. Um, it, it depends on whether most of their load, most of the electrical load or demand that they have to meet comes from, does it come from residential or does it come from commercial or a mix of both? Um, if it's a highly residential load, you're going to see peaks early morning when people wake up, then they plug in their toast, uh, their uh, ovens, their microwaves and heat up their food or when their kids come back later and the parents come back from work later in the evening, that's when the peaks go up. But going back to the topic of um, energy storage and long duration storage, this conversation is becoming more and more important because the more we transition towards a highly renewable energy grid, the more need there exists for long duration storage because current storage technology, apart from um, pumped hydro, can only give you four to five hours. Sure. I think in part that is due to the fact that conventional generation of coal, oil, natural gas mm -hmm. at the big power plants offer a degree of throttling or regulation with respect to their power output to compensate for the density changes that are due to load changes that are due to a whole variety of mm -hmm. factors both in residential, commercial and industrial. Right, exactly. So uh, let's, let's talk about a specific case. So say and this is hypothetical, but it's also happening in a lot of a lot of states in the United States. Um, so let's talk about a state, hypothetical state. Um, they have a lot of peak demand um, coming uh, in the evenings after people come back home, um, and they are a state that's progressive. They're bringing a lot of renewables into it into their grid, um, and they'll still have to meet that peak in the evening after solar dies down. Sure. So there are two ways around it, right? So you can have a lot of like 40% renewable penetration and then 60% can be say natural gas or coal. The problem with that is that those natural gas power plants, which has a lot of capex associated with it, we've put in a lot of capital money, there's a lot of operat operations and maintenance costs over its lifetime, um, they're just going to be sitting there. Right. Waiting to be dispatched during the evening peak. The problem with doing that is that you are going to be, you would have to be running those natural gas power plants um, so that they're warmed up. Well, that's what we call it in the industry. You call it warmed up? Yeah, it's basically you're warming up your car, you're heating up your car, you're going oh, to like warm up. The cost to just do that. Yeah, the cost to have an asset sitting there without <sighs> producing a dispatching energy right. is is irresponsible, number one, and number two, it's just ridiculous. Well, the first thing that comes to mind to me is a, a design improvement to make power generation, along with all kinds of other stuff, more modular, mm -hmm. more scalable, mm -hmm. more like a cell. And that's where the word cell phone comes from, is that the distribution antennas and network are based on cellular technology. I don't know if you knew that. I did not actually. What? <laughs> Seriously, that's why I. Call oh, my, uh, so, oh, yeah, I did not. That's did why. Not. I, that's why I call my phone a mobile phone. <laughs> Just for an example, and I'll explain why. And then we'll get back to power generation and everything else. I call it a mobile phone because I consider the term mobile 
as in mobile phone, be more generic. Right. Betting on, on or hedging on the bets that cell technology will change into a myriad of other technologies to facilitate telecommunication mm -hmm. and phone calls. Right. Yep. Spot on. All right. Anyway, um, the four hours and the lithium ion battery, and to kind of roll this back into sustainability, my takeaway on what you're saying is current technology and probably the gist of the RFP in California, uh, technical specifications require four hours because that currently is the cap of a lithium ion type of uh, <clears throat> grid storage accommodates. Right, exactly. And, you know, and there's another aspect to it, right? Like, the, the, the reason long duration is becoming more important and a lot of states are, um, are realizing it is because, you know, all, every state has these promises that they're going to completely decarbonize their grid by, say, 2035, 2040, 2050. But how exactly are you going to do that? You'd have to have technologies in place that can basically deliver 24-7 um, renewable generation. Sure. Renewables, the biggest problem with renewables is that they're intermittent. Um, current uh, lithium-ion utility-scale storage is only can only be good for dispatching at a certain power for four to five hours. So how are you going to get 24-7? How are you going to get 24 hours in a day of just renewable generation? So that gap right there is going to be filled by long duration storage. Gotcha. And so, look how far we've come. Mm -hmm. You're asking the question, but I would only go back in time to see where we were five, 10, 30 years ago with the capacity for battery storage or any kind of storage uh, as it supplements energy storage for the grid, right? And then extrapolate that and then where we are now, say four hours lithium, 50 megawatt micro grid, micro storage. Mm -hmm. Where are we gonna be in five to 10 years? Well, I think it's gonna be exponential. And I think there is such a wave of enthusiasm uh, socially, a wave of cap X mm -hmm. uh, from legacy to renewable. There's such a wave of even political um, acceptances and promises mm -hmm. towards the same goal of sustainable power generation. And, you know, power generation is really only a third of all energy, a huge impact, obviously. But I'm geeked about it. Yeah, likewise. Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, and just, just kind of staying in the storage topic a little, um, apart from, you know, politics and policies that can make it happen, um, it's, it's also worth noting that, you know, pumped, pumped storage is, accounts for 97% of energy storage in the United States currently. And energy storage meaning um, grid energy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so I had no idea. Ninety-seven percent. So there's a so while we have this whole hype around batteries and long duration storage, it's also something to consider that pumped hydro is is has been and will continue to be a major asset. But um, it's not 
easy to build those uh, those pla those storage plants, those pumped hyper storage plants anywhere. The geography has to allow it to happen. Wait a minute. Are you telling me that currently 97% of all electrical storage is done through pumped hydro storage? Exactly. Yep. 97%. <sighs> and I, I don't think that the number will decrease over time. Um, but it, it's what it is. Yeah. 97%. So I just only heard about pumped hydro storage recently and I'm saying two or three months ago. Yeah. And my understanding, even though I've never seen one of these facilities, is that the way it works is basically the way domestic water towers work uh, in towns that you see water towers in, where for domestic water head pressure to be possible, water is pumped to the top of the tower where it is sitting <clears throat> on a head of pressure or static energy. Then it's released or throttled down to feed households with enough pressure that they need, 30 psi, etc, etc. So this operates the same way, the way I understand it, where you pump water vertically to a reservoir and then it's used later by throttling down spinning turbines through generators generating power. Exactly. And Pushing that power up the reservoir uh, to a reservoir um, through the fence via the penstock, um, that that can be done through renewable power. So you can have solar power or wind that can basically send electricity and move these turbines a particular a particular way, um, and uh, the 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 basis the base generation would be renewables. Interesting. And approximately how efficient are these? I know how the pumps work, but how efficient overall gross efficiency or net? Yeah, I think the round trip efficiency is somewhere between 70 to 80%. And that's with um, moving the turbines one way to move right. the power up and moving, uh, moving the water up and moving the water down. Uh, the whole round trip efficiency is somewhere between 70 to 80%. Right. Um, and there are companies out there and there are projects out there that um, that say that their storage is about uh, 80, 85%. Interesting. Um, um, efficient. Yeah. So if this is going to take a lot of flow, a lot of GPM, then I would think, and also if the CapEx for pumped hydro storage technology is increasing, that there would be engineers and designers interested in, of course, increasing that 70 to 80% efficiency. And the first things that come to mind for me is the efficiency of the motors that drive the pumps, efficiency of the generators, mm -hmm. uh, the efficiency of the pipe in terms of friction, friction loss. Right. Yeah. Or lower friction losses, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, I would think would be a great interest to the designer. Yeah, definitely. Um, and the second half of that story uh, for efficiencies is also how far is, how far are you dispatching that energy? Sure, you know, you can store the energy and it counts with 97% of energy storage right now in this country, but how far is your load? from the reservoir because sure. it has to have electrical losses to go to the point 
where you want to send the electricity to. So, right. and that's where long, that's where batteries have a much superior, um, um, and that's where batteries are more advantageous because you can place them very close to where you want to meet your load. Pumped hydro is great. It has a huge storage capacity. It has high capex cost, uh, costs. It probably has not too high operations and maintenance costs, but I might be wrong there. But just generally, I don't think that the operations and maintenance costs are spoken about as much uh, as a disadvantage. Um, but but that's the advantage with batteries, right? So you can keep these batteries um, at specific locations, very strategically, um, close to close to the load that you want to meet, and they dispatch right away, very quickly. So energy production and storage, obviously a huge part of sustainability going forward in the years. But let's talk about overall load. Um, just a quick look online reveals transportation. This has got to be for the United States. It looks like 2019 represented 37% of all energy consumption, industrial, of course, manufacturing, water treatment, everything falls under industrial that isn't one of the others, has 36% energy consumption, and then residential commercial combined to make up 28%. So I'm a building engineer, and I'd like to talk about great concepts, uh, ideas, yearnings uh, for improving buildings. And I study this religiously every day, always looking for nuances. But 28% of overall consumption for buildings, residential, commercial, uh, still represents a big part of the pie. We've been trying to improve efficiency over the years. There's been various association and government influences uh, Energy Star being one for appliances that comes to mind. But there's still a long, long way to go. And I am really excited about how that industry can change. Right. Uh, do you see, uh, I guess, I guess it goes without saying that residential and commercial um, electricity consumption will go up overall, right, as time goes by. Has and will, that's right. But also efficiencies will improve as they have. Mm -hmm. They'll continue to improve. Mm -hmm. So you really have those two factions working for or against each other, consumption and efficiency, or, yeah. Yeah, exactly, and then into the mixes also. Artificial intelligence that controls devices within the house. Well, it's interesting you mentioned control because when it comes to commercial uh, buildings, hospitals, airports, uh, even going into factories to a degree, uh, it's the control side of the building automation system, BAS, or BMS, building management system, that is the single entity that has gotten much more advanced over the years, the controls. Interesting. BMS also stands for battery management system. Nah. <laughs> As you might know in your Tesla. No, wait a minute. <laughs> All right. Forget about the Tesla for a second. I get to use BMS first because I started using it way before you did. 
I'll give you that. All right. Yeah. All right. I think you can take ownership of that title. All right. But you can borrow it if you want. I, I have. We borrowed it for the yeah, Tesla. Yeah, but you haven't gotten. <laughs> that's true. We have borrowed it for the Tesla. But you haven't gotten my short-term loan program in the mail yet. <laughs> but don't worry. The interest rates will be very mm, competitive. You think so? Yeah. Yes. So what makes you so confident? Well, of course, it's open to opinion and interpretation, but I've never been known to really jip a person <laughs> knowingly. Okay, I'll take your word at it. All right. Anyway, on buildings and efficiency, let's continue on with the same beautiful example of modularity, scalability, and, and, and cellular um, architecture, as it were. Buildings need to go from large-scale mechanical and electrical equipment like is found in conventional power generation plants mm -hmm. to a design that is a more modular design, more cellular. Is it maybe a little heater or a little AC box in each room? Yeah, maybe they're already starting to do that to hedge the COVID virus spreads with a similar kind of small modular design. This is the kind of uh, effort and thinking that excites me the most. And I tell you, uh, in my studies and research, not a lot of people are paying attention to this yet. What's that modular design? Exactly, buildings? right. Make things scalable, modular. I think eventually space stations and outer planetary colonizations will follow the same principles. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very yeah. interesting. Right. Yeah, uh, yeah, I'm totally with you on that. I, I'm not an MEP engineer. Um, I do see a lot of potential with um, um, improving control of devices that uh, in increase consumption. So your thermostat, making smarter thermostats that learns from user behavior over time and you basically do not have to go up to your thermostat, turn it up to 71, turn it down to 65, and then waste so much electricity in the process. Because yeah. you're going to feel hot. Okay, you turn it up to like 70, 78, you feel hot. Then you turn it back down to like 64, <laughs> you feel cold <laughs> two hours later. And you go back, you wake up in the middle of the diet and like, oh, it's cold. <laughs> you go back and turn it up again. Um, it's interesting because... I think, like you said, energy consumption in like buildings are so crucial because as technology is improving, obviously there's energy efficiency like you described. That's as, as time goes by, appliances are becoming more and more efficient, codes and standards are improving, um, like many standards such as ASHRAE, things exactly. that you've worked with obviously. Standard, not code. Yeah. Uh, just to make a distinction, code is, of course, important as well. Exactly, yeah. Um, but yeah, also control. I think control will be uh, a very important issue that uh, new, that sustainable lead buildings have to take into account. Uh, and if they don't jump on that train, the artificial intelligence train, of course, right. early on, they're going to be mm -hmm. losing out. Right. No, it's going to be interesting, maybe a little scary to see how AI advancements in uh, HVAC control systems will continue to evolve. Um, very interesting to the degree we're talking about thermostats 
you know, can you imagine an AI-controlled HVAC system automatically turning down the heat when they think you're <laughs> finished having sex in the bedroom? <laughs> yeah. No. Oh, wait a minute. Oh, it could be possible. Could be. Oh, I don't know. Uh, but seriously, we used to call them thermostat wars. And in commercial buildings, say an office building, let's say it's 10,000 square foot uh, floor print and <clears throat> it is open space with cubicles and there's three thermostats on the wall mm -hmm. and people complain because it's too hot, <laughs> because it's too cold. Right. To the degree that industry has decided to install what is known as placebo thermostats. So they look like a, a T-stat, but they don't act like a T-stat. Really? And all it does is modify the psychological condition of the occupants, of which not just temperature, but humidity plays a critical, <laughs> critical role. Ask anybody that goes from, say, living in Michigan to living in Colorado. Mm -hmm. The difference is not in just elevation, but also the differences in humidity and how that affects comfort. A lot of people don't understand that, or the ones that even do, a lot of times don't even account for it. It's a little bit more expensive to be able to control humidity mm -hmm. as well, but man, it makes a difference. Right, yeah. Um, going back to last night, I think our host for the Halloween party had her humidifier on. Yes, she did. Yes, that's it. Yep, exactly. She keeps that on. Yep. Yeah, there were mm -hmm. about 15 people in there, right. in that house. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, you would not see that in Boston. <laughs> I don't think I ever have seen it in Boston, except maybe for a data center. Right. Yes. <laughs> this concludes our episode on sustainability.